0: How many of you have seen the first episode of Star Wars? It's kind of a trick question though, isn't it? Because if you went and saw the first episode of Star Wars back in 1977 when it was first released, you thought maybe that you were seeing the first episode when in fact you were only seeing episode four. And if you had to wait to see the first episode of Star Wars, you'd be waiting over 20 years until the first episode was released. Because in the genius of Star Wars, they started right in the middle of the story. They started with episodes four, five, and six before they ever got to episodes one, two, and three. And so now I just found out, did you know that there is a big debate among Star Wars fanatics over the proper order in which to watch Star Wars? Do you start in the order in which it was released, four, five, six, and then one, two, three, or do you start in the, just the very beginning of the story and go one, two, three, four, five, six? What's the proper order? Because if you start at the very beginning and go one, two, three, four, five, six, you know what happens. Some of those big aha moments that take place in episodes four, five, and six are ruined back in episodes one, two, and three. So there's this debate. What order do I watch the episodes, leave it to Hollywood to thoroughly confuse movie going public everywhere, right? See, Hollywood, they discovered, perhaps through Star Wars, that people want to know what happens after, after the movie's over, what what happens to the characters after this, and so they started developing sequels. But we don't just want to know what happens after the movie's over, we also want to know what happened in the lives of these characters to get them to the movie in the first place. How did they end up there? What was the beginning point? How did it all start? We want the beginning of the story. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 1, he takes us to the prequel. He takes us to the beginning of the story. Because you see in the Christian life, we live life in episodes 4, 5, and 6, don't we? Oftentimes we even come to faith, come to this relationship with Christ in episodes 4, 5, and 6. Why? We, we, hey, we want to go to heaven, not to hell. We believe that a relationship with Jesus, he's going to make life better. He's going to change my relationships. He's going to impact those. He's going to impact our marriage and, and how we raise kids and how we relate to our parents, our neighbors, all this kind of stuff. He's, he's going to speak into the rat race of life and just give it meaning and purpose and joy and laughter and love. And, and he's going to do these things. He's going to give us this made-for-more life. But sometimes we believe that reality... But we fail to experience it. Why? Because we miss the prequel. We miss the foundational starting point where it all begins and what holds it all together. So Paul in Ephesians 1, he takes the church back to episode 1. Back to the beginning of the story. This foundational starting point that reminds us that before there was anything, he made us for more. So let's check it out. Ephesians 1, 1 through 12. Ephesians 1, 1 through 12. We we began our study in Ephesians last week and just kind of examining how God designed his church. And we're continuing our study today. And I just want to remind you that Paul wrote this letter from prison. Okay? He wrote this from a dungeon cell chained to a guard. And, and this is the letter that he writes. And it wasn't just to the Ephesian church. It's a circular letter meant to be distributed at that time to all the churches throughout Asia Minor and now to all churches everywhere. It is a letter to us. And we we read the first 12 verses this week just to kind of catch up the context again and then we'll kind of zero in and laser focus on verses 7 through 12 and this key shift for the church to move from more effort to more Jesus. Let's check it out. Ephesians 1, 1 to 12. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And we saw that Paul begins, really, with this symphony of praise to the triune God. And he begins this symphony of praise to the triune God with God the Father. And he says, hey, there was a time before the foundations of the earth when there was just expanse and nothing, that God had this vision, he had this dream of how he wanted things to be, of a humanity that would be but then fall away and how he would choose them and call them back and how he would go and rescue them. And so as he has this dream and for the joy of it all to be able to relate to us, he has this dream, this vision of what everything should be. And then God the Son goes and he makes a reality what God the Father has already purposed. The will of the Father is, co- is called into reality by the works of the Son. And so, so Paul begins with this praise to the Father and then this praise to the Son. And then we'll see next week that the Holy Spirit comes and he seals it and he secures it and he guarantees it forever. Forever. And so this is what Paul's doing. He's moving from the Father to the Son to the Spirit. And we saw the praise to the Father and how, and we just went through the verses or or the verbs last week of what the Father has done, right? He's blessed. Do you see these verbs? He's blessed us. He's chosen us. He's predestined us. He's adopted us. And now in this section, Paul moves to the praise of the Son, and who's, who's making the will of the Father a reality. And did you notice how many times in chapter 1 that Paul uses this phrase, in him, in him, in Christ, in him. Did you just hear that repetition as we read it? I mean, this whole section is in him. And remember, this is a circular letter. It was meant to be read aloud. It's not like everyone would just show up and here's the gathering of the saints and we all have our copy of the letter to the Ephesians like we do today. It wasn't like that. One person would have a copy. They would read. Even if everybody had a copy, a lot of people were illiterate back then. They wouldn't be able to read it anyway. But one person has the copy and they read it aloud for the, for the benefit of the body for all the saints. And as this copy is read aloud, Paul wanted this note just to strike the cord of every heart in him, in him, in Christ, in Christ, in him, that this would be repeated over and over and over and over, so that they would leave that place knowing it all happens in Christ. I can't do this on my own. I need more Jesus. I mean, this is what Paul wants the church to know. The future that God dreamed of, that he purposed, that God has determined is already finished in him. We're not waiting. We're not hoping. We're not guessing. It's done. But in the meantime, there's still this struggle. Because while the war is won, the battle goes on. And so Paul is bringing us back to the prequel so that we can remember this foundational truth, so that we can see the bigger reality of what's really taking place. And because so often we think, I got to try harder and harder and harder and harder to win the war. But Paul wants you to understand the war has already been won. I just need more Jesus in this battle that's taking place right now. And in verse 7, Paul praises the work of the Son that he redeemed us, that he has already completed action, redeemed us. We're not in process of being redeemed. We're not hoping, I hope this redemption takes place, that it's fully realized. No, no, we have redemption now. And when I think about redemption, you know, in just our day and age, I typically think about coupons, you know. I go to the store, here's a coupon, and now I get to get whatever product that I wanted for less than the original cost because I am redeeming this coupon. As this letter was read aloud, the original hearers of this letter, the first churches there in Asia Minor, they wouldn't have thought about coupons. Instead, the mental imagery that Paul is evoking in this passage is that of a slave market. This common sight in the Roman world, because... People because of debts or circumstances, or even because of choice, they would have been sold on an auction block. Now, Paul's going to talk more about slaves and masters later on, and we'll get into more of the details then. But when we think of slavery, we have the image of our heads of like the antebellum South and the, just the horrors that took place back then. And that's what we think of in the United States. Paul's imagery here. There's a lot of differences in the Roman world and how slavery worked then, and how it works, how it worked uh, in the in the past of the U.S. But Paul's imagery is still ugly. Okay, it's ugly. It's horrific, and he he calls to mind people who are bound, who are shackled, who are humiliated and helpless on this slave market. And this is what the hearers are thinking. This is the image that they have. And Paul says that we were all slaves on that market. And then Jesus came to the slave block for them, for us, that he came to pay the price, to buy us back, to redeem us so that we would be useful to him. And we want to thank, you know, we, we, we hear these horrific terms that just bring such pain to, to our thinking. And we want to think that somehow Paul is like sanitizing this, that somehow he's baptizing the term slavery and he's making it something beautiful. So some, somehow he's doing something like this. Please understand when Paul writes that I am a slave to Christ, when he tells the Corinthians, you are not your own, you've been bought with a price and they're thinking slavery, th- this is not some, oh, this is a beautiful thing. No, no, it is a punch in the gut that causes you to stand up and listen say, exactly what is Paul talking about? Because he wants the church to know. Many of those hearers right there, they were slaves themselves. And he wants them to know, hey, God chose you. He came for you. you. You were shackled, you were helpless, you were humiliated, and he came for you. And this causes the audience to sit up and listen, because then Paul says something else. He says that when Jesus came to purchase you, He paid his blood for you. And now their heads are spinning because they know the horrors of slavery. And they know that being bought, they might be bought by some kind of brutal master and who they might have to bleed for them. They're going to be doing some hard labor. They might be doing things really difficult and they might have to bleed for their owner. But Paul says, before the owner ever, before you ever knew him, he chose you and he came, and he bled for you. A master who bleeds for you. See, this just boggles the mind. Jesus came and saw you in your slavery to sin, and you could do nothing about it. And in accordance with the will of the Father, he shed his blood for you. For me, he paid the price for our redemption. His blood spilled on that cross of shame so that our guilt could be set aside and so that he could strike off our shackles. That this is the work of God, the work of God completed in God the Son. And it's not a pleasant work, it's not a pre- pleasant price. Blood is sticky, it is messy, it can cause people to become sick. I was getting shots the, uh, several years ago to go to Sierra Leone. I had to get six shots to make sure I was immunized correctly and had everything that I needed anyway. And the nurse says, do you do okay with shots? Are you going to be all right? And I try to be macho, you know. Oh, yeah, no problem. I'm, give me all six right now. I'm good to go. And by shot number three, She's like, I think you need to sit down. Let me get you a glass of water. You're looking kind of pale here. Let's just take a break. This is what happens with blood sometimes, right? It makes some of us feel a little queasy. We get a little faint. And so this whole business of a bloody Savior, it's offensive to people. Because people don't understand, why would God the Father cause his own son to bleed for us, why does there have to be blood for forgiveness? Why? Because the blood underscores the fact that we were on that slave market of sin. That, that in some of us, or in the Roman world, some of those who were on that slave market were there by choice. They chose to be there, just like we chose sin. We clicked those steel bracelets around our wrists. We wrapped ourselves in chains and nailed them to the wall. We chose sin, and even still, God chose us. So Jesus bled and he died because it was the only way to buy us back. It was the only way to redeem us. Jesus' death for our death, Jesus' blood for our blood, and even more, Jesus' life. For our life, so that the life of Christ, all the righteousness of Jesus, can now be set on us. He doesn't see us in our sin any longer. He now sees us in Him. There's that chord again. It's in Him, it's in Jesus. He sees the righteousness of Christ in us. Jesus so identified with us that He went to the cross and His reality becomes our reality. We are now in Him. And so when Jesus died on that cross and rose again, God's integrity and his justice was forever upheld. He's now free to love us to the utmost degree, to do to us whatever he wishes. No one can stand in the shadow of the cross and argue, God, you you don't take sin seriously. No, No one can ever stand in the shadow of the cross and say, God, you would save that person. It doesn't seem like you really care about the seriousness of what they've done. No, as they look in the shadow of the cross and they see the blood-stained footprints under the cross, it can never be denied. Jesus takes sin seriously. Even the littlest amount of evil, the smallest sin, it is paid for on the cross. It it reminds us of the lengths that God went to so that our account could be paid in full, so that he could redeem us back to wholeness, to this made-for-more life that he destined for us right back in the beginning. And this is the marvelous truth that Paul calls the riches of his grace. The riches of God's grace. God did it all. I did nothing. I can't, I can't add to it. I can't deserve it. I can't merit it. I owe it all to God and the riches of his grace and he's lavished this grace on us. He's just heaped it on us, just, just piled it on us so much. But I can't count it it's so much. It's, just, it's overflowing, and God did this, not just to wash us clean at conversion, but to every moment in our lives when we fall again and we, we fail again and we're covered in that sin and grime one more time, that again God lifts us up and he reminds us the war's already won while the battle still goes on. That you are clean again, that you are forever clean in the righteousness of Jesus. He just overwhelms us with his love. His grace is ever-present at every moment for us. It never runs out. And he's redeemed us to be co-laborers with Christ. I mean, that's just incredible. The Christ who redeemed us has now called us to work right alongside him. To be his co-laborer. To be these stewards, as Paul puts it here, of the divine mystery. The mystery of God. That what God planned in eternity past is now being worked out and entrusted to us. To reveal this mystery, this divine mystery. But you know what? Sometimes we forget it, don't we? we? We forget all this because we forget the prequel we forget the starting point that foundational point that started so long ago and our perspective gets distorted we forget this all happens in Christ that every bit of life is in Christ and instead circumstances situations just the moments of life seem so big here's how it happens We come to church, we begin the week, right? And we're, oh yeah, I'm in Christ. This is good. We get up Monday morning, we go to work. We don't really think about doing our job or going to school or whatever is being in Christ. We just get up and do it. And so we just kind of push them away a little bit. You get home, you see your neighbors, you see your family, whatever. You don't really think about how you relate to your neighbors, how you relate to your family, anything like that in Christ. You just kind of go through the motions. You just do what you do. And you you turn on the TV, you watch whatever, you read a book, you have some entertainment time, whatever. You don't really think about that as being in Christ. You just do what you do. You pay the bills, you do your finances, whatever you got to do there. You don't really think about how that relates to being in Christ. You just do it. You eat whatever it is you're going to eat. You know, you have your meals for the day. You don't really think about how that relates to being in Christ. You just kind of do what you do. You go to sleep. Whenever you go to sleep, you don't really think about how that relates to being in Christ. You just Do what you do. And then the issue comes. Then the struggle comes. Then the temptation comes. And it looks so big because you're standing right next to it. And Jesus looks so small. You say, how how can the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, how can He impact this? Because our situation seems so big and he seems so small. He's like a little tiny Jesus who I can fit in some small place in my heart. But as far as being the cosmic Christ who enters into every moment and every detail of every aspect of life, we miss it. This cosmic Christ who is working to bring all things, all things in heaven and on earth in unity to unite them all in Jesus. But see, when we live our lives in Him, when we think about, okay, how does, how does my job relate to Jesus? How does my relationships relate to Jesus? How do my finances, how do my entertainment, how do my eating habits, how do, how's my rest? How does it all relate to Jesus? It's as if Jesus whisks us up in an airplane and we look down and we see the cars, you know, and they look like matchbox cars. And we see the houses and they look like dollhouses, you know, I can just pick them up and do whatever. And we see our struggles and they look like speed bumps. Because while the war is won, the battle goes on. But now we see, oh, this is just a little speed bump in life. And I can have joy in all things. This is what Paul talks about in Philippians, that there is joy in everything. I can count all things as joy. Why? Because my circumstances don't seem so big anymore. I am in the cosmic Christ who is over it all. You see, we don't need more effort. We need more Jesus. So that we're in the gutters of life, we still see the magnificence of our Savior. We don't need more effort. We need more Jesus. Paul is telling us the prequel, the foundational starting point of humanity, of all creation, God's purpose in history, the reason for the existence of time and space to begin with, and it's to unite All things in Christ. Every little aspect of my universe, He's uniting it in Christ, just as He is all of creation, He's bringing into unity in Christ, so that one day He will be seen as all in all in every aspect of life, so that this cosmic Christ, He makes no division between the secular and the sacred, He makes no division between the church and the community. He makes no division between our identity and our reality. It is all under him, uniting all things in Christ. You see, he has made us for more because he is at work in us to be stewards of this mystery, (laughs) to be dispensers of this mystery. And this is the great mystery that throbs in the heart of every human, that what is the meaning of all this anyway? What is, what is God doing on earth for heaven's sake anyway? Why is this happening? What is the purpose of life? And so Paul says, I've given you the answers. I've given you the big answers. He's made us stewards of this mystery. But you know what? Sometimes we look around the world and we say, How? is God bringing unity in Christ. I don't see unity. I I see more division. I I don't see more worship. I I see more war. I I don't see more peace. I I just see a bunch of people arguing and having a hard time, and, and, and even in our own lives. We look and we see, okay, this is the Christian who I want to be, yet I see the battle and the struggle that I'm in. I don't see myself being united in Christ always, not not to the degree at which I would like to. And Paul says that while we now see struggle, evil, division, we will one day see peace, goodness, and unity in Christ. How? In Christ. Yeah, 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 but how? In Christ. No, but I want to know, how is God doing all that? In Christ. Christ. See, we want to skip the pre- prequel, don't we? we? We want to skip that foundational starting point of how it all happens in Christ, and we want to run ahead to the exclamation point when sometimes we just have to be okay with the question mark and just embrace the question. See, we get the question why is God doing that? Why is God allowing that to happen? And we want to jump in and say, Oh, well, I'm so glad you asked. Let me, let me just show you. Here, here, here. Here's what he's doing. When sometimes we just got to step back and say, I don't know. I don't know. But I know this God is at work uniting all things in Christ so that one day he will be seen as all in all. That's the mystery I get to steward. Do I understand it all? No, no, no. He even says, you know, now we see through a glass dimly. One day we will see face to face. John says it, uh, dear children, I want you to know that what you will be has not yet been made known. That there is a degree of mystery that we steward, but yet we haven't fully figured it all out yet. And we've got to be okay with that. The, the details of how it all comes to pass, I don't know. But the war is won while the battle continues. Paul hints at this idea, you know, of not knowing everything, and he seems to be all right with it. He seems to be okay that we can just steward the mystery, that we can dispense the details of the mystery that we know, the big details. We've got to be all right with not knowing everything. But see, when it comes to humanity, we always want to be in the know, don't we? We want to know more. We want control. We we want to know the inner workings and, hey, I want to be on the inside. I want that inside scoop of what's going on. What we need is more Jesus and just to trust that he can figure this thing out and I can't. In fact, if I could figure it all out, there wouldn't really be a need for Jesus, would there? I would just need more of me because I've got it all figured out. I don't have it all figured out. I don't have it all figured out, and I am okay with that. This is not willful ignorance. This is, this is studying as hard as I can to know Jesus better and better and better each and every day, but there is ultimate trust at the end of the day that Jesus can handle what I cannot handle, that Jesus can understand what I cannot understand. But at the same time, I am his co-laborer, and I am a steward of this mystery. And the tension of that We gotta be okay with. We have to sometimes embrace the question mark and not just demand the exclamation point. See, God, in His lavishness, He has given us an inheritance that we have already obtained in Christ. That in Christ we have already obtained this inheritance, but an inheritance that is also in the future. Do you see that? Because I can read the scripture and I know that one day we will inherit the earth. Do we inherit the earth now? No. Have we obtained our inheritance now? Yes. That one day we will have the responsibility of rule and reign alongside Jesus. That one day we will rule the angels, as it says in 1 Corinthians. Do we we judge the angels now? No. But I will inherit that role of rule and responsibility alongside Christ. But yet our inheritance has already been obtained. I am okay with that tension. I do not have to understand how it all works together. But I know this, our inheritance has been obtained now because the focal point of our inheritance is Christ. That he is the chief means of that inheritance and we inherit all of him now. That he is ours now. His righteousness, his resources, his identity, everything about him, we inherit it now. And we've obtained that inheritance now. Are there aspects of the inheritance that are not yet? Yes. But we have obtained the chief point of that inheritance now. See, our God is so big (laughs) that we can't fully wrap our minds around it all. In our impact group this week, we kind of ended the group by saying, hey, let's just kind of go around and everyone share one characteristic of God for which we're thankful. And we said, "We well, you can't repeat somebody else's characteristic that you're thankful about, you know. And there's like 15 of us in the room, and so we're all thinking at the beginning, well, I, you know, I kind of want to go towards the beginning so that somebody doesn't take mine, because I might be struggling, you know, by the end of it. And then we went around, and it was like boom, 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 boom. No problem, no problem. We get to all 15. We could have gone around again and again, and again, because we sometimes have this small view of Jesus and we think he's small. Oh, I can come up with a couple characteristics, but then when we start to think about the enormity and the majesty of this cosmic Christ who we serve, oh, we can go around again and again and again and again because his goodness never stops. This is the bigness of Jesus. We should live in a way that Jesus is so big so huge that we know we are in him. That, that He is so big, this cosmic Christ, that we know we are in him and we are so in him that we're, that we're even looking around thinking, how would I not be in him? Where, where would I go to flee from his presence? He's so big. We, we should live lives with him that it's almost as if If we were walking side-by-side with Jesus right now on this earth, that we are so in Jesus, living this made-for-more life that he's designed us to live, that the angels in heaven would be looking down and kind of nudging each other saying, which one, which one, which one is Jesus again? Because we are in him. His life becomes our life. He changes our status. He gives hope, future, and then it all comes back to encourage our present so that we can live in the purity of him, of just seeing him in all things. See, we, we sometimes think, oh, that life is not possible on this side of heaven. But if you know how Jesus has lavished his grace on you, how he's just overwhelmed you and just heaped it upon you. He says, you can live the made-for-more life now to the praise of his glory. How? In Christ. In Christ, there's no other way. I get excited when I think that God would love me so outrageously, so lavishly, that he would change who I am that he would make me the kind of man that I could never be if I were left to myself. But he hasn't left me to myself. He hasn't left us to ourselves. We're in Jesus That changes our status. He's made me something different, someone different. He's given me this mystery to steward, an inheritance, all for the praise of his glory. Not my glory. All for the praise of his glory. See, I've got to preach this to myself every day. I've got to remind myself of this prequel every single day because what I want to do is I want to run ahead to episodes 4, 5, and 6 in God's ultimate plan. But when I live in episodes 4, 5, and 6, what tends to happen is somehow I draw away from the omnipresent God. But when I draw near to him and I focus on episode 1, and I move from more effort to more Jesus, all of a sudden the reality of what God is doing on earth for heaven's sake anyway becomes a little clearer. He whisks me up in that airplane and I look at the struggles of life and they're just speed bumps because I know the war is won even though the battle continues. You see, we are made for more. But to experience that more, we've got to shift from more effort to more Jesus. Heavenly Father, like Paul this morning, we we just praise you that you are so big. Father, that you looked in eternity past and destined a future for your creation. And God, we thank you for the work of the Son that he works now to unite all things in him so that one day Jesus will rightly be seen as all in all. God, we recognize that that is our identity right now. God, we pray that it will be our reality as we live, that in our life, in our little spheres of our universe, that you would be seen as all in all. In every aspect of our life, we would see your redemption of how you paid for that through the blood of your Son. Help us to live that reality well. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom we love. Amen.